subject of God's word in hand, turning with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, where we will be reading and studying together chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. Before, before I read, let me just um, say a, a, a couple of things uh, about this. Um, first of all, it is, um, it is my custom, my habit, to whenever I preach, to preach all the way through books of the Bible. I think that is the call of pastors. I'm having to kind of break uh, this rule uh, both this week and also probably next week. Hopefully this is a, a, just a, a rarity that this happens, but um, I'm preaching at Presbytery this week. I was prepping for it uh, earlier in the week, and then we got a phone call uh, saying that we, they had moved our closing date to this past Friday, um, and which good news, I'm no longer a homeowner. Uh, so that, that sold, that, that's, that, that stage of life is well, we're now done is in the past is in the rearview mirror. Um, but just with the busyness and everything, it just, just time would not serve, uh, to prepare a, a, a second sermon. And then next week we have Presbytery. Please be in prayer for me for that. I'm preaching at Presbytery. And then after that, we're going to go spend a little bit of time with my grandmother who's been having just a series of strokes for over a year now. And they've all been minor strokes, but they're starting to kind of accumulate. And she's just in really bad health. Um, Presbytery is at French camp, which is like 30 minutes away from where my grandmother lives. And so we're going to go and visit her. So next week's going to be kind of full as, as well. So what we're going to do here is kind of piggybacking on last week. Uh, we talked a little bit about worship and particularly how we use our voices and music and in singing in worship. And so what I want to do is these next couple of weeks is just kind of take that and kind of run with it and have a very brief series on what are called the ordinary means of grace. And if you don't know what that is, you don't know what that is, just bear with me. I'll tell you what that is. And so, so today's text, we will look at Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. Before I read God's word, let's pray and ask that he would please multiply his blessings to it. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, these are the words of life. They are not the words of men that carry on the character of men being weightless and being fallen and being finite, but these are your words that carry with it your character. It is immutable. It does not change. It is eternal. It is always, always, always beneficial to the children of God. So Father, we now come to you with a sense of reverence, a sense of awe that you have revealed yourself to us in these words, but also, Father, with a sense of joy, because what we have here in this word is the revelation of the God who spoke the heavens and earth into being, the, the God who we have alone have sinned against, and yet he comes to us and speaks so tenderly and sweetly to us in the gospel. Father, may we see the gospel here this morning. And it's for the sake of Christ that we ask these things. Amen. So now hear the word of God, Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. 
And he answered them, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Amen. So I don't know how you've been, if you've been following this kind of phenomenon that's kind of going on, but have you read or heard about the the Asbury uh, revival that's going on? Uh, It's at a, I believe it's a Methodist uh, college and, and seminary. Um, I guess it was maybe a couple of months ago, um, there was a, a chapel service. And after the chapel service, a, a number of students decided to stay back for a time of, of prayer and just mutual encouragement. And then they just kind of stayed and other people noticed. And then they came and they started doing the same thing. And now what you've had is is, is just a months-long kind of chapel service with people kind of coming in and out and preaching lots of prayer and things like that. And, and it's, being, it's being called like kind of a, 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 a new revival, a new type of maybe, maybe like, like, a, like the Great Awakening or something like that. And if you've studied the history of, of, of the American church, what you'll notice is that there have been several of these little kind of outbreaks of revival. Now, let me say just from the get-go that I believe in revival. I believe that there can be certain periods of time where God just pours out a, 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 new, a, a, new, a new outpouring of his spirit that captures minds and captures hearts and really brings in new worshipers and a new heart for the gospel, a new heart for the worship of, the worship of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. I do think that happens, but something that you notice about these revivals is maybe take them with a, a little bit of a grain of salt. Because what ends up happening with these revivals is most of them will peter out pretty quickly. Now, why is that? Why is it that they so often will just kind of fall to the side? I think, I think, I think the reason for this can be kind of some of them in one word. Extraordinary. Extraordinary things can be exhausting things. And I think you see this particularly in the New Testament, particularly when you look at the letters of Paul and compare it to what you see in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. So in the Gospels, you see a lot of miracles, don't you? We just read about one. Jesus casting the demon out of this little boy. 
And then you go into the book of Acts, and you see other miracles. Paul is raising people from the dead. They're casting out demons. They're healing the sick and all these things. And you just get so kind of focused in on these extraordinary miracles. But then you get to the letters of Paul. Where do they go? He barely mentions miracles. Peter in his letters barely mentions them. Jude barely mentions them. John barely mentions them. The only ones I can really think of off the top of my head is really in 1 Corinthians. Paul talks about these miraculous gifts, these tongue speaking and healing, but he only mentions them in a way to kind of minimize them. He's like, these things are good, but they're not primary. The primary thing is prophecy. It's, it's the preaching and teaching of the word. That is primary. Miracles just serve. They're not ends unto themselves. They are a means to the end of the proclamation of the truth of God that is found in his word. He really minimizes those things. And so sometimes we look at these and we're like, why can't we have these extraordinary things all the time? Why can't, we, why can't the Asbury revival turn into the Salem revival? Well, the reason that the reason this is, and the reason that Paul sets these things aside is because those extraordinary things, as I said, can be exhausting. It's not sustainable. You know what is sustainable, though? The ordinary. The ordinary means of grace. And so when it comes to our worship, when it comes to our lives as Christians, Paul, Peter, John, the biblical authors, they never ascribe to us. They never, pre they never prescribe to us some type of chasing after the, the miraculous, chasing after the big and the bold. But they always encourage us to do three simple things. Ascribe to the word of God. Sit under its preaching. To, to attain to the sacraments. To take in the Lord's Supper, his, the bread and the wine to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then to pray to God. Those are the ordinary means of grace, word, prayer, and sacrament. Now, something that you might notice about those three things is that, that in two of those, you are completely passive. You receive the word of God. It comes to you. It is delivered to you. The sacraments. You sit there, the plate is brought before you, you take the bread and you take the, you take the wine. You are receiving it. But prayer is different. That is the one where you are active. In the word and in sacrament, God is coming to you. But in prayer, you are going to God. And in fact, the reason I'm piggybacking off last week is because our songs that we sing, our hymns, if you look at them carefully, particularly at how they are ordered in a traditional Reformed worship service, they follow after the pattern that is given in the Lord's Prayer. So how does the Lord's Prayer begin? Uh, you know it. We just, we just recited it. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He, Jesus is teaching us how to pray. He says, he says, the first thing you do is extol God for who he is. You stand in amazement of who he is, and you express that to him. Well, What's probably the most popular first opening hymn in the history of the Reformed Church? Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. All that song does is that one thing, the praise that sings, the praises of God. The first hymn, the first verse of the hymn that we sing today, Father all glorious all, or all victorious. 
We're extolling him because of who he is and what he has done. And then usually what comes after, after that in the, in the Reformed liturgy is you'll have a time of, of private and public confession of sin. Where the, usually the law of God is read, it is brought to bear on your life, you see your sins exposed, and you go to, go to him and you go to God in prayer, you confess your sins, and then that second hymn is, is declaring the glories of salvation in the personal work of Jesus Christ. It is, it is giving you the assurance of your pardon. So our singing is, is, is a type of prayer. But like sometimes maybe we struggle to sing. I think we also struggle to pray, don't we? I mean, I, I can remember, R.C. Sproul has said a lot of things that have been kind of, you know, stuck in my head for a long time. But one of the things that always struck me, because it was very convicting, because it was certainly described, uh, described me, is that he said, if you want to make a Christian uncomfortable, ask him about his prayer life. So let me make you a little uncomfortable. How is your prayer life? How ordered is it? Is there certain times in the day where you're setting aside and I am just going to God in prayer? I am going, he's been speaking to me and I've been sitting here mute and deaf. I am going to speak to him. What is your prayer life like? And so this morning, I want this to be an, an encouragement to you, but I also want to do a little bit of, 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 of diagnostics and maybe, maybe diagnose the problem of why we struggle so much with prayer, why our prayer lives can be so bad sometimes. Now, there's a lot of reasons this could be, but this, I think this, this text really highlights two of them, two problems. The first problem that many of us have is we fall into camp one. We're like the disciples. And then the other ones, the camp two, we're like the father here. Not, by, by, not God the father, the father of this little boy. We're either like the disciples or we are like the father. Well, what do I mean we're like? The disciples. The disciples here, before we do this, let me just set up the context of kind of what's going on here. So if you look there in chapter 9, right up above it, you have the story of the transfiguration of Christ, which is one of the most marvelous things that take place in the Gospels, probably outside of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, this one really stands out. In all the synoptic gospels, it's right dead in the center. It's like the it's like the the spine of the book is on, the, the, on which the, the the pages turn. The transfiguration, where where Jesus and three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, they ascend upon this mountain, and there he is transfigured before them. What this means is is that his his divine nature begins to to just exude out of him. He begins to bleed light. It, it, it emanates from him. Um, what's interesting there is in that text is uh, Mark refers to Jesus as being the Son of Man. The Son of Man is a character from Daniel 7. This messianic character who is, who is man, he's Son of Man, but then he ascends to this, this character called the Ancient of Days. And what's interesting here is in the Transfiguration, Jesus is called the Son of Man, but he's described as being the Ancient of Days. So who is he? Is he the son of man or is he God? Yes, he is both. He is the God man. He is both the fulfillment of the son of man and the ancient of days. And the disciples are witnessing this. Elijah is there witnessing it. Moses is there witnessing it. And it just, this, this, this glory is just, just being broadcast off of this high mountain. Um, 
I always hate to do this because it's a, it's an image of Christ, and images of Christ always make me a little, a little bit uncomfortable. But Rembrandt painted a, a picture. He painted a picture of the of this of this event, and I, I, I really I love how he highlights this. You have on this mountain, you have Jesus, bright white, glowing. The disciples bowing down before him. Jesus is there with Elijah and Moses, but underneath the mountain contrasted with this brilliant light is this darkness. And through the darkness, you can just barely make it out, but you see this crowd, and you see the disciples, and they're just bickering and biting and gnawing at each other, just, just, just really, really getting at each other. And what a contrast that is. The glory on the mountain and the war at the foot. But this is what's happening when Jesus comes out off of this mountain, being transfigured before these three disciples, he comes out here and he comes into this, this just mess that is down before him. And they're all arguing. But what is it exactly that they're arguing about? They're arguing about why it is the disciples could not cast out this demon. Why can't they do it? And so the disciples are puzzled by this. Jesus comes to them. Um, uh, here uh, in verse 19, you can just... Hear the frustration in Jesus' voice. He says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. You, you, you hear how frustrated he is. But there he highlights the problem that is underneath all of this. Both the problem for the disciples and the problem for the father of the child. Faith. Faithlessness. That is the problem. For the disciples here, it is a misplaced they're trusting in something else. They're not trusting in God. They're not trusting in Jesus. They're trusting in something else. And I think this is really highlighted there in the last words of Jesus here in verse 29. This kind, this kind of demon, it cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. A lot of times we can kind of bog down. Like, okay, there's different kinds of demons and stuff like that. That's not the main point here. That's not what we're to be sitting down and meditating on, different types of demons. What we were to see from this and stand back in shock and in awe is the fact that th these disciples, the closest people to Jesus, are there with a demon-possessed little boy, a desperate father, and the thought to pray never entered their mind. That should shock us. That should have been a shock to the disciples. When Jesus said that, they should have fallen on their face right there and said, what is wrong with me? Well, why didn't they pray? The answer is this, and this is, this, is, this is a cancer to our prayer lives, is that here the disciples, their trust is not in Jesus. It is in their own ability. Because here's the thing. This is not the first time that they've tried to cast out demons. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus breathes on the disciples. It's a, it's a, it's a sign of him, him giving them a, a, a part of the spirit that indwells him. And he says, go out there. I'm giving you the spirit. Go out, cast out demons in my name. Go out and heal the sick in my name. Proclaim the gospel, repentance of sins in my name. Go out there and do that. And you know what? They did it. It worked. It actually, Mark, Mark 6, they, they, they come back to Jesus and they're just shocked. Like, it worked. All the things that we see you doing, we've been doing as well. And so that's not the problem. It's not the problem that they haven't done it before and they didn't know what to do. It's just that they forgot how they were doing it. They weren't doing it by their own ability. 
They were not doing it by their own merit. They were doing it as a gift from God. It was God doing it through them. They had become they had come under the, the spell of the devil's lie that everything that you have, everything that is good, is because you earned it. It's because you were somehow worthy of it. That's not how this works. You know, we were in Habakkuk um, uh, the, the past several weeks talking a lot about suffering. And we asked the question, like, why does God allow suffering? I tell you one reason why I think he allows suffering. It's because it's when we suffer that we pray the most earnest. Prosperity. Prosperity gives you a false sense of security. It says, I can do this. I don't need, I have no need for anything else. I'm taking care of this. But that's not the truth of the matter. It, it always bugs me. When I hear professional athletes, say basketball player, we're in Memphis, a big basketball city, um, they've just won a championship, and they get up there and they they give. I think it's supposed to be an encouragement, and like you know, if you if you try hard, you put your mind to it, you can do you can do this too. It, it all it takes all it takes is a, is hard work, a little bit of faith, believe in yourself, and you too can do it. And I'm sitting there, I'm like. I'm like, okay, this guy's like what? 6'10, six, six, 6'11. I'm 5'11. Um, he has this incredible athletic ability. He can jump over a Ford Ranger. I can't jump over a nickel. Did I choose to be 5'11? No, I didn't choose to be 5'11. Did he choose to be 6'10? No, he didn't choose to be 6'10. Yes, he worked hard to be in shape and be in top athletic form, but at the end of the day, genetics play something into it. It was a gift. Like, no, like I, I, hate to, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but the idea that you, you can do anything you put your mind to is simply false. I cannot play in the NBA. I would, I would do good to make a church league basketball team. We, we can't just do everything. Now, now, a lot of people will say, well, wait a minute. Well, what did Jesus just say here? He, doesn't he tell the man that if you only believe, all things are possible. All things are possible for those who believe. That is a dangerous, dangerous misinterpretation of this text. Jesus, God, is not a genie in the bottle that we rub and he simply comes and asks what we want and he just starts giving it to us. Notice here that when, when, he's, when, he's, when Jesus is speaking to this, to this, to this man, Jesus is speaking to this man. The thing that, that kind of frustrates Jesus is, is when the man says, well, if you can. If you can. Well, no, no, no. Like, like he's, 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 questioning the, he's, he's questioning the ability of Christ here. And so when we, when we, when we come to that text and we see, we see him saying all things, all things are possible, there's an interpretation of it, a misinterpretation of it that says, if you just believe, all things will be possible. And I, this is devastating to faith. Absolutely devastating. Uh, the best illustration that I've ever heard of this was something that um, uh, Derek Thomas told me. Uh, this was in our Christology class at RTS. Um, he said that he was uh, ministering. I can't remember if he was in South Carolina or Jackson when this happened. 
but a, um, a woman in his church who had been a very faithful member for decades, her whole life, was one of the sweetest, most Christ-like people he'd ever met. And he got a phone call early in the morning that she was in the hospital and the doctors were only giving her a couple of days to live. There's nothing they could do for her. And so he puts his stuff up, he gets in the car, he drives to the hospital. Um, the, the family hasn't been there yet, but as he's, as he's walking up to her room, uh, a man who he didn't recognize comes, comes out of the room and walks past him. He looks and he sees the guy, and, but doesn't think much of it, but the thought was kind of, it's kind of stuck in his head. But when he comes into the door, she is just sitting there just weeping, like uncontrollably. And he just assumes this is because of the, 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 the diagnosis that she has just received, that she's not going to live much longer. But that wasn't it. The man who walked out of the room was a, was a faith healer. He comes to her and says, if you just believe, if you just really believe, then you'd get up from that bed and you'd walk out of here. And there's this woman staring death in the face, has been in Christ pretty much every moment that she can remember. And there, her faith is ruined. Why? Because of this. Philippians 4 says, I can do all things for Christ who strengthens me. Read that, read that text in its context. He's not saying just ask to be able to jump higher, just ask for a better job, just ask for more money, just ask for healing and you will receive it. No, what Paul says there is essentially this. God, if I die, I can die in strength through Christ. That is what he's, I can fail through Christ who strengthens me. He's not saying that God will just give me anything that I want. But he is saying that Christ will give you what you need. Always and forever. But that only comes when our faith is directed at him and not at our own ability. As I mentioned last week, and as I mentioned to the, to, to the youth uh, down here just a little while ago, what Martin Luther's last words were, we are beggars. This is true. We have nothing that was not given to us. You do not have the ability. You are weak, but he is strong. That is where your confidence lies, in his strength and not your own. If your eyes become directed at your own ability and you become convinced that you are worthy in and of yourself, your prayer life will tank. It will be non-existence. Because what is the posture of prayer? Is it not on your knees, hands clasped? Who else takes that stance? A beggar on the street. You are a beggar before God. And prayer is the mechanism of our begging. You might have, pretty much every time I pray, I always say, God, we are coming to you with open hands, like empty hands. There's nothing there. We are offering him nothing. We are only asking that we would receive. If you think that you've got this covered, you will fail. Your prayer life will fail. You must be convinced of your unworthiness. You must be convinced that you are not able, that you cannot do it. Now, this is hard for us because we're Americans and we don't beg, do we? We have jobs, we have money. It can be hard. It's, it's hard for me. It's hard for me. Like when, when we just found out that Hillary was pregnant with Mac, I had a little bit of a freak out. 
And because, like, I knew that, like, you know, I didn't make the most money as a as a teacher and as an assistant pastor. And I knew that once the baby was born, that you know, she was either going to have to quit her job or was going to have to definitely take a lot of time off. And we're always going to we we're going to lose that income. And I'm thinking, how in the world are we going to be able to do this? And so, rather than going to my the church or the school and asking for a raise and begging, basically. I was like, I'll just go get another job. And so I got I got a second job. I delivered pizzas for Papa John's. And that took up all my evenings. I was not being a good husband. I was not being a good teacher. I was not being a good pastor. It was ruining my work. Bring it, bring it to shame. Now, by the grace of God, somehow the headmaster of the school found out that I was doing this. And he called me into his office. I'm thinking I'm in trouble. I, I said something that offended a Baptist or something, and which happens sometimes. Um, and he calls me into his office, and uh, he says, uh, so, Nick, I hear if I need a pepperoni pizza, you're the guy to call. And I'm just kind of laughing. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. And he's like, um, what do you need? Like, like, what do, like, what do I need to give you so that you can quit that job? Like, just ask for it. I mean, because, you're, like, you're not really asking. You're getting it. You're getting something. Like, you're not living here in Behemden. I am giving you something. But I'm asking you, what do you need? That made, as wonderful as that was, I, I could not tell you how uncomfortable I was accepting that charity. We hate being beggars. We hate being beggars. But before God, that is all that we are. That is all that we are, and prosperity will move us away from that. Thank God for your suffering. Thank God for the hard times. Because as back in my back in my Baptist days, we used to always talk about the foxhole Christians. Like we're in the foxhole, everyone's praying. Why? Because they're desperate. Do you know how desperate you are? Your prayer life will show you. It's easy to say, well, yeah, of course I'm desperate. I, I can't do this myself. How's your prayer life? Does that make you uncomfortable? I hope it does. <laughs> it makes me uncomfortable. We are all weak. It's just that we're blind to it. But when we come through situations that show us our weakness, it is as Martin Luther has said, not Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon has said, when you feel weak, and incapable, praise God, you've hit the truth. You are weak, and you are incapable. Beg. Beg. The second cancer to our prayer life is, is, is being like the Father here. So the disciples here, they're, they're trusting in their own ability, but the Father here is doubting Christ's ability. So we look at the, so, so sometimes we look at this kind of sense of humility as being like, well, it's a virtue. Uh, if if the humility is despair, as if there's just complete hopelessness, that's that's not actually humility. That is a more accurate view of self that you can't do it, but it should never lead to despair. Because if it leads to despair, that means that there is there's something wrong with our faith as it looks toward Christ. We are being like the Father and looking at Him and saying, "Well, if you can, if you can," and that's what Jesus Jesus, Jesus says. If, if I can, if I can, this is absurd. Do you know what just happened on the mountain? 
Have you not heard of everything else that I've done? What do you mean, if I can? And like I said before, this, there's a difference between that and the ability and the willingness of God. Because here's the thing. Sometimes God is not willing to say yes to everything that you ask for. The greatest example of this is Jesus himself. As he is there in the garden, sweating blood, what does he ask God for? If it is possible, take this cup from me, yet not my will be done, but your will be done. If the Father would answer no to Jesus, it is very possible that he might answer no to you. But I also want you to make sure that you understand, here I'm not speaking about your salvation. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What do we need? What do we need in order to be saved to the uttermost? Repent and believe the good news, and you will receive eternal life. It's not an if, and, or but. There's nothing else attached to that promise. It is yes, 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 and always yes. But sometimes it pleases God that we will be left in a dark providence. Sometimes it is his will to leave us in it. But like I said, that is a magnificent grace so long as it causes us to cling to the cross more firmly. If that's what it does, it is a good thing. When no comes from the mouth of your father who loves you and sent his son to die for you, you can better believe it. It is good. And it is always good because he is always good. So what do we need in order to pray? Some practical advice here. First of all, and this all comes from John Calvin, we need reverence. You need reverence. You need fear before God. Where does that come from? It comes from a knowledge of God that is, comes from this book. You need the word. This is where the ordinary means are kind of building, drawing from one another. You need to know God. You need a reverence before him. You need to understand your need. You are a beggar. Ask yourself, what do I have that I have not received? What is the What are the benefits of Christ that I have received? I did not choose myself. I did not call myself. I did not justify myself. I am not sanctifying myself. All the blessings in heaven find their yes and amen in him and not me. All that I add to my salvation is the sin that made it necessary. That is all that we add to it. You are a beggar. The third thing is humility. You are a beggar. Act like one. Hit your knees before the throne of God and beg him. And then fourth and lastly, a confident hope. Now, real quick here. That sounds contradictory, doesn't it? I just told you to be needy, and I told you to be humble, and then I turned around and told you to be confident. How, does, how exactly does that work? It's because our confidence comes through faith in Jesus Christ in him alone. Our confidence is rooted in him. In fact, I'll give you a little Latin lesson here. You know what the Latin root for confidence is? It is con fide. 
if you know the five solas, you know what that word fide means. Sola fide, by faith alone. Confide means with faith. Our confidence is not apart from faith. It is faith. There is no difference. Living confidently is living in faith. What does this look like? This means we boldly approach the throne of God, knowing that he is our father. And it prays a lot like this father does at the end when he learns his lessons. He says, Father, I believe. Help my unbelief. Boy, that's faith right there. Faith that recognizes the sufficiency of Christ, his ability to answer, and my and my, all the weakness and all the cracks that are within my soul, within my mind, and within my heart. But one more brief point of application. You see, sometimes we can be like this father when we, when we go to God in prayer, asking that he would forgive our sins, that sometimes we begin to hear the voice of the accuser, Satan, say to us, you've done too much. You have sinned too much. These other people, yeah, they, yeah they've sinned, but not like you. You're different. You've caused a lot of hurt. You've caused a lot of pain. You're a really, really bad guy. There is no room for you at the foot of the cross. You're, you're squeezed out. You're pushed to the back of the line. You do not deserve that. Martin Luther said that when Satan comes to him with his threats, you know what he would do? He thanked him. He said, you're right. I do not deserve what I am going to receive, but I know one who does. I know one who died. I know one who died in my place, and there is my faith. So thank you, Satan. All you've done is caused me to run back to my Savior, run back to the foot of the cross, where I should have never left in the first place. What a what a what a ironic kind of change that Martin Luther does. That even Satan, when under the providential working of God is a gift to the Christian so long as he sends you back to the cross where you should have never left in the first place. You cannot out the coverage of the atonement of Christ. You cannot. He is God. God died for you. What could you possibly do that could defeat that? Not a thing. That is where our confidence comes from. So how do you pray? How do you pray? With reverence, with a sense of your need, with a humility that begs, but with a confidence that does so with joy. We are joyful beggars. Let the world be jealous. Our Heavenly Father, what a gift. What a gift your word is. What a gift your gospel is. For Father, it is unconquerable. We have something that even the angels in heaven long to look into. We sit here and we think, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to have a lot of questions. We're, we're going to have to wait in line behind the angels who are going to ask us the question, what is it like to have the righteousness and the blood of the Son of God? They don't have access to that, but we do. Boy, are we special, but not because of what we have done, but because you 
are a gracious God, the depths of which we will never, ever, ever be able to plumb. So, Father, we'd ask that that grace would be multiplied to us, that it would infect our minds and our hearts and our very being for the sake of your name throughout the nations. We pray these things. Amen.